0: So this evening, I would like to look and explore the second of the Eightfold Path, which generally is known as right thought or right intention, but possibly, I think nowadays, Stevens translates, I think, as appropriate thinking. It kind of changed time to time. It's hard to keep up. So... (laughs) But basically, it's, it's about looking at, in a way, what kind of thought uh, we can cultivate. Which, in thought, there is also this idea of direction, of intention. And so generally, the definition with uh, the second of the Eightfold Path, it is the thought of renunciation, the thought of non-ill will, the thought of harmlessness, And so I think here, basically, in a way, the Buddha is telling us that it is not that we need to have, again, a certain type of belief or think a certain type of thought, but it's more, in a way, what is the intention, what is the color of the thought, that the thought have, in a way, are inspired. I think it's kind of looking a little at what inspires us. What are we intending toward? And that he says that on the spiritual path, on the meditative path, it will help us to move toward, to be inspired by renunciation, by non-ill will, by harmlessness. And so in a way, this uh, second path is really to look, it seems to me, in terms of the meditation, in terms of the practice, in terms of the awareness, to look what is in our mind, what impels us, what calls us. Because in a way that's what will influence the next two paths, which are speech and action. And I feel that in a way we have to be careful when we think of doing meditation often there is this emphasis on concentration and often an emphasis on trying to have no thought when we do meditation. But personally I think actually we need to look at it differently that actually as we sit in meditation as we try to concentrate as we try to also observe the changing nature to see that to have thought, will give us information. And in a way, the, the, that information will tell us what is it that I generally cultivate? What is it that I'm generally kind of thinking about? Is it taking me toward renunciation, non-ill-will, harmlessness, Or is it taking me somewhere else? And so in a way, it's not so much to judge the show, judge the thought, but to kind of start to see what kind of thought am I having, what kind of intention am I cultivating? And could I slightly, in a way, kind of transform it? Can I have more choice in it? To me, the meditation is giving us a choice to instead of going that way, maybe if we go that way, it's more beneficial for ourselves and others. So I'll start in a way, backward, and start with harmlessness. So harmlessness, what it means to have harmless thought, harmless intention. Basically, it means that we're trying to have a kind, a compassionate thought, a kind, compassionate intention. And then what is interesting is as we sit in meditation, And we start to see, to me, that's what is also useful, is to be aware of what is it I'm thinking. And then we start to look, what is my inner language? I think there is two things we can really start to look at. Inner language and inner stories. What is it, what kind of language? Because when we think, we generally think in language. We use language language to talk to ourselves. And if we look at the language, I would say, is it a language, a vocabulary, which is marked by harmlessness? Or is it a language which actually is often harmful, is often quite harsh, is often quite tough? If we kind of look inside ourselves, often we see, that what we're telling ourselves about ourselves or others actually is not so harmless. Sometimes it can be quite harmful to ourselves and to others. Or Otherwise, we can have inner stories. And then if we look at the inner stories we tell ourselves, again, are they harmful or are they harmless? Sometimes we can so frighten ourselves. It's very interesting. We frighten ourselves in advance. You know, oh, and this is going to happen, oh. And right now you're totally fine. But you kind of start to make this thing, which become like this huge monster. And it really frightens you. And to see, but, I mean, is this true now? Is this going on now? Because I think this frightening ourselves can actually make our pulse go faster, and we get anxious, and it really can be quite harmful to even our kind of nervous system, our physiological system. And so in a way, the awareness starts to kind of give us information, and then from the information we can maybe start to think, oh, maybe could I have a different inner language? Am I stuck in the way I express myself in my own head? Or can I kind of change it a little? And so to find, often one thing we do is what I would call generalization. We totalize. I am always like this. I mean, we totalize. It's always like that. As soon as you say always, you totalize. And I think that's harmful because you fix yourself. You always do this. You fix the other. They will never change. So you know what you really think? And I think in terms of kind of relating to the self and others, this is kind of harmful. Otherwise we have this, often this, it's kind of like there is this harsh, critical kind of voice in ourselves. It's nearly like you have a little police person or kind of like a judging person who never takes a holiday and kind of, you're bad, you're so bad, you're so stupid. I mean, look at the language. Sometimes it's quite harsh. And then we might do the same to others. Are they always stupid? They will never amount to anything. I mean, when um, now you kind of see Stephen and you might think, wow, you know, he has this intellect, and you might be very impressed by Stephen. Mm -hmm. But actually, (laughs) he he did not, he did not finish, he finished high school, but he did not get what you're supposed to get. He was supposed to get two something A's or O level, and he only got one of them. But the good one, he got French. (laughs) (laughs) And when he, at the end of the year, of the school year, you know, generally the the handmaster used to shake hands with everybody. And the headmaster barely shook hands with Stephen. And he said, bachelor, you will never amount to anything. And it's not true. It's not true at all. He went to do study and he kind of now he has this great knowledge that he can share with others. And so in a way to see that often this kind of harsh language, this kind of like harsh stories, in a way limit ourselves limit others. Also, we often have this categorical, categorical language. It must be like this. I have to do this. I must sit in meditation. I must be totally concentrated. I must stay with the breath for the full 45 minutes and not miss one second. This, I think, is impossible. I can't even do it. And I've been doing meditation for a long time. So in a way, to see how often we kind of start to have this, it must be like this. And again, it fixes us. And we do it to other people, to situations. It must be like this. And things cannot always be like we want them to be. Things generally are more floating, are more kind of loose. And so what I think is interesting with this harmlessness is when we sit in meditation and when we notice maybe kind of a harsh language or maybe a categorical language or kind of a generalization language and you see yourself saying to yourself, always or never, and can we tweak it a little? Possibly, maybe. Time to tie. So we're trying to soften it. I have to do this. I could try to do it. So that in a way I feel personally that we can, in making it softer, more fluid, more tentative, then we start to have a more creative language, which then can be much more harmless to ourselves and to others. Then there is a second one, non-ill-will. So it's really wishing well, having in a way what I would call a peaceful thought, peaceful intention toward ourselves, toward others. It's the opposite, to have a vengeful thought, or an aggressive thought, or a resentful thought. And this we can see as one of the things we do time to time. We sit in meditation, and this is what I call rumination, So we are here sitting, trying to watch the breath or be aware of the body, of the sensation, and we are relatively okay. And then suddenly we have a memory, an image, a word, a thought from the past, something painful. And we think, they did this, they said this. How could they do this? How could they say this? I would have never said it. I would never do this. This is so hurtful, so painful, so terribly painful. And then you start to feel the pain. Yeah. When I mean, it's in the past. And you bring it in the present, and generally you bypass the present, and then you go into the future, and you plot revenge, Very compassionate activity on the cushion. And the next time I see them, they will say that, but I will say that, and I will get them. Very compassionate. And generally when you meet them, they don't say what you scripted for them to say. So you can't say what was that. And in a way, to see, I think, this with this rumination, where there is also quite, I think, some resentment, some often some aggressivity, just to kind of see it in the past, in a way the pain is in the past. I cannot change it. I can learn from it, but I cannot change it. The future, I have no idea. I cannot really script it. The only thing I can do, is prepare now, to really prepare now by cultivating stability and openness so that when I meet them, then I respond to that situation, either by protecting myself, either by meeting them in a new way, possibly. And I think in a way to to see when we go into this kind of like, uh, what I would call negative kind of rumination, to see a little how it works. And so in a way, through that, we're trying to see when kind of like when we have certain thought, what is a coloring of the thought? Is there a little kind of resentment, aggressivity? Can we replace it with something which is more kind, kind to ourselves, kind to others? Because in a way, we also can be quite aggressive toward ourselves. You can't do this. You're hopeless, etc., etc. So we can, again, have that same effect on ourselves. So trying to see, how can I look at this, be kinder to myself, in my own mind, kinder to others. And in that way, I think what the Buddha is trying to say is then we can cultivate a different groove, a groove of non-ill will a groove of kindness, a groove of compassion. And then there is renunciation. Renunciation can be seen in many different ways. You can see renunciation as restraint. You can also see it as contentment, or you can see it as letting go. Restraint, often we see restraint as forcing ourselves. I really want something, but I am going to force myself not to have it. And that generally doesn't work. It really doesn't work, because in a way you're giving it more power. And at the same time, it is important at times not to do certain things. Like, for example, if you have a, an alcoholic problem, then if you can be sober, it can help in many different ways. And that's what you have the 12-step program to help you to really try to stay sober. But if you do that by yourself, it's very hard because you're stopping, stopping, and then you will have that impulsion. And so you have the 12-step and the group which will help you so that you can restrain yourself in what I would call a creative way. And recently I read an article which was very interesting in terms of restraint with food. And that... This person was working with uh, people who have a uh, food problem, eating problem. And that she was saying that actually she shocks the people because she makes them eat things they like. Because she thinks, okay, I could make them eat carrots, but they're not going to kind of eat kilos of carrots. Generally, they will have more problem with sweets, with cakes, with things like that. And so what she does... And she has it, them eating what they like and what normally they would eat lots of very slowly. So they eat, one, they eat something they chew a long time, macrobiotic style. You chew, you know, <laughs> 50 times. And what is interesting is that if you try it here too, if you eat with awareness, the first three bites are really good. And you think, I want more. <laughs> but if you continue to chew, to chew, to chew, it loses any taste. And so that I want more just goes because it's just stuff. And she said by doing this with people, it's really efficacious just by learning to eat mindfully and slowly. I do this with cherries. I love cherries. But if I eat them slowly, I will eat much less. And if I go, yeah, You know, you eat them, and after three bites, yeah, three chewing, yes. It's just tough. So in a way, to see, actually, restraint can work in different ways. It's not so much forcing. We're actually trying to, I would call that creatively engaging. With mean, What is going on? What is going to help me? real restraint with help or this kind of different kind of mindfulness which will be like a restraint. Then you have simplicity. To me, renunciation is a little about simplicity. And in a way, the question, this is about renunciation, the question, what is it that we need and what is it that we want? And I think meditation Awareness helps us to see that. Do I need to have the latest iPhone, I think number four or something? The other day I was in the street, very early in the morning in the town, and I saw this huge queue in a shop, and I thought, what's that? I could not understand what all these young men were doing. You know, (laughs) nine o'clock, the shop was just starting, I thought, what's going on? And then I saw an ad the latest iphone and then i thought ah that's what's going on so do we need or do we want it and i think at that level we can look at the consequence of our desire in terms of you know ecology i want this then i accumulate and then but do i need so many things often we have this guy this double glazing guy phoning, you know do you want double glazing? I said no, I have got it already. I don't need the new double, treble, quadruple. I am okay. I don't need anything else. My house is furnished. I don't need anything else in there. So, you know, it's kind of like, what is it we need? What is it we want? And I think the renunciation is us looking at that, seeing in the mind, when you have this, "Mm." and generally it's, I want this. And then the awareness can possibly make ask, but do I need it, or do I need it in a different colour? That's also sometimes a question. <laughs> <laughs> but I think also with renunciation to see the other side because often renunciation is kind of like as this kind of bad press. There is also I feel this uh, notion of contentment, and there is a wonderful passage. In a sutta, in uh, where the Buddha says yes, this grandiose beginning. What is a, the, the double, triple noble lineage, and what is it that will make a disciple part of this noble, triple, fantastic lineage? So we really expect something big, you know. He's presenting this kind of you know there is this noble lineage, and what you need to be part of this noble lineage. What is really the the amazing stuff you have to do to be part of this? You know, have 20 jhanas or, you know, 10 years of meditation. or What is it you need? And he says, you need to be contented with your clothes. You need to be contented with your food. You need to be contented with the house, the shelter you live in. And you need to do meditation. That's all you need. It's very easy to be part of the noble lineage by actually just appreciating what we have. So I think it's very important to see in terms of renunciation. It's not so much about pushing things away, but to me it's kind of turning around and appreciating what we have already in our life. What is it that sustains our life? Because if we look, our whole survival depends on things outside of ourselves. And in order to appreciate that, instead of being called, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I want more. Instead, turning, hey, what do I have? What is it I can appreciate? What is it I can enjoy? And then there is also the aspect of letting go. And to me this is an important aspect of renunciation. When I was in Korea, as a nun, I was one of at the time, in the seventies, eighties, one of the rare French nuns. So nun with a Western look. They called us big nose. <laughs> and so I was kind of a little of a rarity. So, Korean did not look too much like their monks and none, but if you, they had a Western monk and nun, they were very excited. And I remember one day, being in this taxi in Seoul, and the guy was driving a little erratically, going somewhere, and I was in the back, and he was like, wow, you are a Western nun. Wow, this is amazing. What a renunciation, no family, no children, wow, no drink, no, no cigarette, wow, no going out to, to party, to dance, wow, this is amazing. You are such an amazing person. What a renunciation. I could never do this. And I was sitting at the back of the taxi thinking, the problem is I don't want any of this. So for me, it did not appear like a renunciation. I did not want any of this. I did not want to drink, to smoke, to have a family, to have children, to go out, to dance. It had no attraction whatsoever. So I I could not see myself as such a great person. I, I just enjoyed to meditate. I enjoyed to be a nun. And so I think often renunciation is actually the fact that what we wanted so much, or we do not want anyway, and so we kind of have a different relationship to it so that we can be in contact with it, but we don't necessarily have to have it. That was an interesting experience when I was a nun, to just see windows, shop window. There would be all kinds of things, and I could not connect with any of it because I did not need it. I did not use it. So it was just stuff. And so in a way to see, it doesn't mean that we don't have needs, but in a way to see what is it that in a way makes us thirst, makes us want something, makes us, oh, I want this. And I think what, what is it? It's what I would call grasping. And to me this is what in a way renunciation is about, is what we are doing here is actually dissolving grasping. And when grasping is dissolved, then you can be in contact with things, but you will have a very different relationship. You'll have what I would call creative engagement. So I'd just like to talk a little about grasping now. What, what does it mean? What is it like? And so for those who have not seen me do my little party trick, I have to do it. though the one it will be a reminder. So let's say this is the greatest thing in the universe. It's gold, diamond, or the truth of the universe, and I have got it. This is a very important part of grasping. It belongs to me, I have got it. And because it belongs to me, it's precious, I hold on to it. I grasp at it. And if I grasp at it in this way, two things will happen. The first one is that I will get a cramp in the arm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's very important to see that if you feel some tension in the mind, in the heart, in the body, generally some, a lot of the time there is grasping and identification. And through that there is this kind of holding which tends to the whole system. Then there is other thing which is more problematic. And it is a fact that if I grasp at this, I cannot use my hand Mm -hmm. for anything else. So in a way, I am stuck to what I am grasping at. And this is, I think, the main difficulty with grasping. And I would say meditation is slowly, 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 slowly learning to open our hold. So then, the thing can rest gently. I can still have it, but then I don't hold on to it, identify with it, and then, okay, I have it, I use it, then I can move it, and then there is more freedom. And it's important to see that with grasping, there is generally identification. I, me, mine. Like, let's say, after two days, Tomorrow morning, somebody comes and sits on your cushion or your chair. This is my cushion, my chair. Or possibly you have an armchair in the lounge. This is my armchair. At 1.30, I always sit there. It's like my space at that time. So often we do that. We grasp, we identify. And when we do this, we solidify around what we grasp at. Then we limit ourselves to it. Then we magnify it. This is a problem with grasping, that we magnify what we grasp at. Because when we grasp, we have this two-side effect. One which I would call the proliferation effect. For example, isn't it pretty? We have this wonderful person, like a kind of a fairy goddess of the flower arrangement. I don't know if you've noticed. They're all so beautiful, the flower arrangement. And so you see, oh, it's nice. It's lovely. Oh, it's so beautiful. And You can go in two different directions with proliferation. I love these flowers. Ah, no, I can't really take them to my room. Somebody will see it. But wouldn't it be nice to have these flowers in my garden? What kind of flower are they? Who could I ask? What kind of shop could I go to? Where could I plant them in the garden? And by then, you're not with the flowers anymore. You've gone. You've gone in the future. You're thinking already of acquiring them. Or you can go different style. Ah, oh, oh, it's such beautiful arrangement. Ah, oh, if only I could arrange flowers like that. Ah, oh, I am such a hopeless person. <laughs> I could not even think of ever... Arranging a flower arrangement like this. I'm so hopeless. And I will always be hopeless, you know, not just with flower arrangement, but everything in my life. So you can have positive proliferation, negative proliferation. But to see how so easily we are with the contact, we could just stay with the beauty and with the appreciation, the gratitude that the person makes such beautiful arrangements. And just stay there. And that, not grasping. This is just, I would say, renunciation. Just being mindful, just being present to what is there. And notice when we start to proliferate. And then we go very far from the beauty. We've just gone somewhere else. And then the other aspect is exaggeration. We have a tendency, as soon as we grasp at something, we have a tendency to exaggerate it. And you can see this, for example, very simple example of a shop window. You look at a shop window, you look at your favorite type of things you like, maybe a shoe shop or maybe a computer shop, possibly you're looking at the latest iPad, and then it has this kind of glow around it, like if it's floating, you know, this kind of glow. And you think, ah, oh, I won this because it's kind of like amazing. It's going to change my life, you know? And then you get it and it's okay, but it doesn't have that anymore. But we exaggerate so easily. It's kind of like, ah, oh, because we kind of, in a way, you could say when you grasp, you focus too much and then you just exaggerate. It's so great, it's so fantastic. It's the most fantastic thing in the universe. I'm not saying it's not fantastic. But to see what is it we add to it by grasping at it, by identifying with it. Or, and that's generally more painful, we do this with also what is negative. What is negative, what is painful, what is difficult, we exaggerate it negatively. And we amplify it and then it gets really, really painful. Recently, I suddenly had this attack of pain. Suddenly, I was driving, and I had pain everywhere. And it was so painful, I could barely drive. So I go back home, I lie down on the bed, and I have this kind of feeling, I have pain everywhere, this is awful, this is terrible. And then kind of creative awareness reassert itself, and I think, wait a minute. Do do I have really pain everywhere? And I thought, no, I don't have pain in the head. I don't have pain in the hands. I don't have pain in the feet. And then slowly, slowly I could see. It was not. Although I had this feeling, as soon as I grasped at it, I had this implicit feeling. But when I really kind of looked at the experience itself in the body, like we did today, of course it was still painful. But it was not exaggerated, and often we do that. We exaggerate. We make the thing last longer. You have a problem with somebody at the office. Last ten minutes, ten minutes, and but you're upset. Of course, you're upset. It was disturbing. You did not like it. It was upsetting, and then you say. Oh, really, you know, this person, they always do this, and they always say this, and if only they were not in this office, and if I did not have to be with them, and working together, it's so awful, it's so terrible. And you go round and round. You continue to work, you go round and round. You go home, you go round and round. You wash the dishes, you go round and round. You go to bed, you go round and round. But the person has not asked... To be in your head. You are keeping the person in your head. You are grasping at the person. And it's very important to see that. It doesn't mean the person did not do something. It doesn't mean you cannot creatively engage with that in the moment or later. But to see that when we grasp, we add something. Which then makes it more difficult for us to creatively engage. And so in a way I would say that with uh, renunciation, to me thought of renunciation in a way is thought intention which is not grasping. And then we can be in the world in a different way. We can appreciate what is there. We can creatively engage with what is difficult. And so I wanted to just finish with a few words about maybe looking also in terms of appropriate thinking, looking at mental habits and mind states. And I think it's very important to see as we sit in meditation, as we try to be aware, to concentrate, to look deeply, we will have thought. And again, for me, these thoughts are information. I don't see it as bad to have thought. I think it's just the brain working, just electricity doing its thing in our brain. And I think this is a good idea. And then we can have more information about, in a way, the grooves in our mind, which are going to influence our speech, our action. And I think what is important to see is that actually there is three different types of thought, what I would call three different types of mind state. See three different types of mental habits. I would say there is an intense level, the habitual level, and the light level. And the difficulty is that generally we try to work with the intense level. But when it's intense, it's very difficult to work with it. But the meditation helps us to see more the habitual level, helps us to see the light level, And the easiest place to work is with the light. And so I think it's very important for us to see, not to kind of go into scientific analysis, (sighs) but to see that when you have intense thinking, you really can, in a way, seem to be obsessing about something, obsessing about some negative stuff or positive stuff or some choice you have to make or whatever it is. To see that generally you are obsessing Because something happened. You are not always obsessing. Something generally happened a week ago, two weeks ago. Something recent happened. It's a shock to the system. And in a way, it has to go through the system. Once I would travel to South Africa, where I teach time to time. After two or three days of arrival, I phone my mother. How is it going at home? And my mother said, we have been burgled. And I was going to be in South Africa for six weeks, so not much I could do about it. Everybody was helping my mother, so that was okay. And then I started to teach a retreat like here. And after a day, I suddenly saw myself. As I was guided, guiding the meditation, I suddenly saw myself. Obsessing. And I was obsessing in two different ways. First, security. How can I make the house secure? Kind of locks, da-da-da-da. And then I saw, I can't do anything about this now. Let it go. Nothing you can do for the next six weeks. The next obsessing was revenge. I am going to go back home. I am going to get some kind of mouse trap and put it in such a way that if they come again, they kind of, you know, suffer for it. And then I thought, this is not such a good idea either. But in a way, I had to do it. I had to go through it. I could not, you, could not just say, oh, we've been burgled, life is impermanent, never mind, you know. I hope it will be beneficial for them. You know, I mean, that's what I'm supposed to do. But I don't think so. I think it's like you have a shock to the system and then the system has to work through it. And I think that's where the obsessing comes from. You just have to go through it physically, mentally, psychologically, etc. And then after a day, I really saw it. And then as soon as I saw it so clearly, I let it go of it. I did not need to, give the, I did not need to feed it anymore. I did not give it energy, and then I let it go for the, for the, for the rest. And so in way, to see that there is a bit of obsessing which will happen, but what we can try to do is not feed the obsession so that it becomes relatively endless and relatively continuous and very painful. But by seeing it, we actually make it less intense and it will last less long. Then you have the habitual. Habitual is kind of like grove in the mind, where we go. And what is interesting with that in meditation is to try to be aware of the texture of the thought. And one interesting one is daydreaming. Daydreaming is a favorite activity in meditation. It's And look, the texture. Mm, it's like chocolate cake or ice cream. Mm. And it starts with, if I had, if I was. And it's kind of, "Mm," very seductive. And actually, before we can do anything about this habit, we need to feel the texture. We need to know the texture. We need to know the first words which will take us there. And then through coming back to the breath, coming back to the body, slowly, 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 the power of it will diminish. And then we can take it back to imagination. But the easiest level to work with is light. And light is just light occupying thought. And often that will will happen. You might be sitting in meditation. You don't have any intense thinking. You don't have so much habitual thinking anymore. And what you have, and you would think, well, now I should have no thought and just... The breath, the body, but you still have what I would call occupying thought, and this kind of little kind of train of thought. you start with Aunt Elga, you finish in new york you don 't know how you got there, you know <laughs> you know, or you have light, what I would call light planning, one of my favorite used to be luggage. <laughs> you know, I travel a lot in. Three months, I go to Australia. What should I put in my luggage? <laughs> maybe I don't need to do this right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so in a way, we just have to see it. I think just to see, ah, luggage. Don't need to do that now. Ah, that one. Don't need to do that now. So you're not fighting with the thought. But you see them, and you say, ah, oh, maybe not this time. Maybe not that one. I can go back to the breath. I can go back to the body. And then we start to know our mind much with much more spaciousness and clarity. And then in daily life, we have more creativity with our thought. We can think something if we want to, or we can let it go if we want to. And to me, this is what the Buddha is talking about. He's not talking about no thinking. He's talking about appropriate thinking. Appropriate intention. And I think that's what we are cultivating here when we're sitting, walking in meditation. So that's what I wanted to say today. We just have the time for maybe one or two questions, if there are any. Mm-hmm. No, no. This, I think it's very important to see this is a meditative exercise. This is not a scientific analysis. This is not a psychologically analysis. But personally, I feel that sometimes it's too fast. You have a thought, you don't know what it is, you come back. Don't worry about it. But sometimes you can, over time, notice. You see, I used to have lots of daydreaming. Until I noticed, I was daydreaming in Korea, as a nun, daydreaming about going to a hermitage to be awakened to save everybody. So I was daydreaming about meditation. But that was not meditating. But it took me some time to see that I was doing it. because I would be, Often what we do is that we are so, so identified with the story, with the thought, that we don't see what we're actually thinking. So this is just like what I would call a light awareness. So you kind of like just see yourself. Ah, that's what I'm thinking about. You'd, it's not necess- it's like for myself. Ah, luggage. Before the luggage, I had repairing clothes. Nope. So I don't have the repairing clothes anymore. The luggage is not there so much anymore. So I don't know what the next one will come up. So it's just, ah, that's what I'm doing. And then you see, oh, yeah, I have done this before. You do it one time, twice. So it's just what I would call a light kind of awareness. So yes, the foreground is the breath of the body. Tomorrow it will be listening. And just to sit gently. Ah, that's what I was doing. Just kind of very gently. Not, not what I would call like in Burma you do the noting. It's kind of very, you must note everything. I would not say it like that. I think that's a little tense. But just a gentle, a gentle awareness of where you went. If you can see it. If you cannot see it, never mind. It really doesn't matter. Yes? Um, When you find yourself obsessing about something, um, it's often helpful to kind of return to the brain. Break you know, the power that you're giving um, the thinking. If you're laying in bed and you can't get to sleep, is it a good idea to, you know, I I tend to kind of concentrate my breath, but I'm wondering if somehow that links breathing with almost like going to sleep. And so it might affect your practice somehow. Do you see what I, mean? if you yeah, mean, yeah. I, said, I would. Is there a better way of dealing with? It? I would not say so in terms of sleeping. In terms of sleeping, I would say, what you do is the best. To to lie down in bed, to be aware of the body lying down, to return to the breath, that is the best. If you have some thought which are obsessing, that is the only way. To look at the thought is not going to help. Not in the middle of the night, because I, I, I were, we're not in the best of, uh, the, I would say, the top capacity of our thought. And it's very easy to get obsessive in the middle of the night or when you go to... If, you, if, you can't, if a thought cuts you, then it's very tricky to get out of it. It's kind of like you're not, I would say, compost mantis enough to really kind of be able to do what you could <coughs> do in meditation. So I would say, no, at night, I would say, go back to the breath. Really, go back to the breath. I would not recommend listening to sounds. Unless you live in the countryside, and, but the bird will be sleeping, so no. It, uh, you know. <laughs> listening is not so good, because often it keeps you awake. I would say the breath, the body lying is the best. Then what I would say in terms of obsessing, I would say, yes, coming back to the breath or the body with obsessing can be useful. But you also have to look... Am I obsessing because it was more like a shock, something sudden? Or I am thinking about something because it's on my mind, because, for example, I have to make a choice. Or because there is a certain situation in my life which I need to resolve in some way. That is different. The shock, yes, coming back to the breath. That's the only thing you can do. But if you have to make a decision, you have something kind of complicated in your life, I think what I would recommend is what I call meditative creative thinking. Is that once a day, for let's say at least 15 minutes, you just think about this and nothing else. You think for the focus is a choice. The focus is a complicated situation. But instead of repeating what you generally think about it, you try to think something different. Can I think something different about this choice? (coughs) <coughs> and I think something different about this situation, how would somebody else think about it? So to really to open it up and to really think about it for 15, 20 minutes and then after that you leave it be. For the rest of the day you will not think so much about it and then you come back to the breath. Then the next day you think about it again. So then you give it some time, what I would call some quality time, and then you address it in that way. And then underneath, what is interesting, if you do that, underneath things also happen. And then suddenly you might have a very good idea about it. I saw this happen on a retreat. There was this, this person who had a choice to make. very, And she wanted to stay on the retreat and she wanted to go back home to do something. And she really was torn and was very crying about it. And I just told her, just be with it, try to think about it, but in a different way. Try to think about it in a different way. Just kind of do a little breathing meditation, then just try to think about it in a different way. And then she disappeared, and then she reappeared. And so I had no idea what happened. And then she came, she came to me, she said, Ah, I went back, and then I came back here. It was not just uh, I go or I don't go. And she found a creative solution. So I think this is often what will happen. That's what I would recommend. According to if it's a shock or if it's kind of more like a, a life choice or something. Good. I was just wondering um, something you said resonated with me about worrying that if you, if you return to the breath when you're trying to get to sleep, that you will associate following your breath with going to sleep, and then when you're in meditation, following your breath, you will go to sleep? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, it's not my experience, because this is something I do. This is... uh, I mean, now I I had a period where I was uh, sleeping rather badly, and that's what I did. I would kind of try to fall asleep with the breath, middle of the night, back to the breath and I had no association whatsoever I think it's, it's such a different I would say it's such a different experience you know you go to bed, you lie down it's very different than I am going to meditate, you sit in the posture I mean it's quite a different condition of course you would have to check you know this is what I would think but that's for you to check is it as soon as you sit <laughs> possibly but that's for you to find out you know I mean, I have a friend. As soon as he sits, But not because he does this, because he just falls asleep anywhere, anytime. (laughs) And then for him, it's very hard to meditate. It's very hard, because it's very hard for me to to stay awake. So that's for you to find out. But I personally would doubt it. Would doubt it. Good. We have to stop here now. There is some uh, walking meditation, and then we'll meet back here.